Hello there, this is Sietse from the Nirvana Podcast. Just a quick word before we get started. What you are about to listen to is our second episode. And at that point, we were still figuring out how to make a podcast and how to record it and how to edit it. Maybe not unlike a band that just got together and made their first demo tapes. So in a way, it fits. Um, I hope it doesn't bother you too much because I think our conversation about the early days of Nirvana was pretty interesting. One thing I can promise you is that the audio will be better in future episodes. So please bear with us. That being said, I hope you enjoy the podcast. You are listening to the Nirvana Podcast, Episode 2, The Birth of Nirvana. Hello everybody and welcome to the Nirvana podcast. My name is Sietse. And I'm Yiditja. We are talking about Nirvana on this podcast. Yes, we do. That's why we're called the Nirvana podcast. Hey, never so realized all... that until today. Yeah, it's Thank such you. a weird coincidence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In these uh, episodes we talk about the history and the music of uh, the band Nirvana. Well, we just finished talking about uh, Kurt's uh, childhood years. Yep. Would you mind uh, giving a short recap? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so that was the previous episode, which talked about the birth of Kurt Cobain in Aberdeen, Washington, in the USA. His childhood, which was uh, very nice and happy until his parents got a divorce, which made a big change for him. We talked about how he lived with different relatives, different friends, and how hard it was for him to uh, find a place where he belonged, I guess. We talked about how he was interested in art and in music, and how eventually music took the upper hand. Even over religion. (laughs) Even over religion, yes, definitely. Uh, We talked a bit about Chris Novoselic and how Kurt and Chris met, and how eventually Kurt decided to... um, start a band and made the effort to make a sort some sort of demo uh, which he gave to Chris and Chris took about a year <laughs> until he yeah. listened to it but when he finally listened to it it was uh, interesting to him and he was like okay maybe I should start a band with this guy so that yeah. was the chronological part we also talked a bit about how Kurt liked to uh, invent stories about himself also. <laughs> <laughs> and about how uh, official uh, biographies and, and other books deal with that and uh, I think we'll get back to that often so uh, yeah it, it'll it'll come up later again yeah, yeah. wow that was a great recap I I really am um, wondering right now why it took us uh, an hour and a half last time <laughs> to cover this. But uh, uh, no, if you want to know more about that, uh, check out our first episode. You can, uh, you can find it wherever you found this episode. So yeah. we're on, on Spotify, on uh, Apple Podcasts, on uh, many other platforms. Yeah. So just, uh, and, and also, if you're starting with episode two, that's weird. So just go back to episode one. First. Yeah, that's that's true. Stop, stop, stop fooling around. <laughs> um, so, like you, like you said, uh, we left off um, basically at the moment where uh, Chris Novoselic agreed to start a band or at least to play music with Kurt Cobain. Yep. Can we, before we get more into that, can we clear something up? Because I realized yeah. last time that you're calling me him Chris and. I 
use the T at the end, oh, which yeah. is Christ, yeah. um, which might sound confusing for people who don't know that much about him and just think, oh, those silly Dutch people who can't pronounce <laughs> his name. Make up your mind. <laughs> oh. I, di- I didn't even realize that. Yeah. I, I pronounce his name with a K and a silent T. That's, that's the <laughs> exactly, thing. Yeah. 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 So maybe for, for people who don't know, uh, Chris Novoselic is, is uh, from, well, his parents are from former Yugoslavia and his uh, first name, you spell it with a K at the beginning and the T at the end, but he spelled it Chris, C-R-H-R-I-S for a long time, basically because that's easier in the USA, which yeah. makes sense. And then he changed it back again to the original spelling. But if you see the Nirvana stuff and people writing about it and, and whatever, you see both of those names being yeah. used. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. Also, I think while we're on the subject, we should also um, uh, come to an agreement about how we're going to pronounce uh, Kurt Cobain's name. Do we say it with a D and a T, <laughs> exactly, or just? Yeah. <laughs> now let's let's use the uh, the the official birth spelling without the D. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that was something he did as well. He sort of wrote it differently yeah. in different moments and, and it's confusing yeah. I, I did that too yeah <laughs> yeah on the, uh, in high school because yeah. Kurt Cobain did it I thought it was really cool and also <laughs> cool. I have a bit of an uh, unusual first name even for a lot of people in the Netherlands uh, Sietse which you can also spell in different ways yep I did that uh, at the top of tests and stuff like that <laughs> I sometimes like to uh, mix cool. it up <laughs> no it wasn't cool because I, I was just copying Kurt Cobain yeah, that's what you do when you're yeah. like 15 or whatever. As long as you don't do it now anymore. No, I quit doing that a long, <laughs> okay. long time ago, I can say. Yeah. Oh, um, and also I'd like to make uh, another just small correction. In the previous episode, when we talked about uh, the recordings that Chris and Kurt did with uh, <laughs> uh, the guys from the Screaming Trees. Yep. Yeah, and named the jury. Uh, I think by uh, mistake, I said it was in 1981, but it that was in 1989. Yeah. yeah, I just... <laughs> Set the wrong year, but you know, want to uh, have a clean slate before uh, <laughs> we start this episode. Right. That being said, um, we left off last time uh, that um, Chris and Kurt decided to uh, play music uh, together. So they started to jam. I think in 1986 for the first time, and also they um, played sometimes together in a weird project called the Stiff Woodies, which I don't think was a no. really serious <laughs> band or anything but sometimes uh, Kurt played drums yep and uh, Chris would sing and they had different friends I suppose or different musicians on yeah, yeah who filled in and the other spots and whatever yeah but I don't think uh, Kurt always drummed I mean no, no I don't think so other people as well but I found a recording of uh, the Stiff Woodies so I thought that would be a nice moment to uh, <laughs> to start I don't know if it's Kurt was drumming. Actually, to be quite honest, I'm not 100% sure that it's actually the real Stiff Woodies, but I got it from a pretty reliable source. And also, it kind of sounds like Chris on the vocals. So uh, let's have a listen to uh, just a little bit of a breakdance boogie. Yeah, okay, I think that's <laughs> that's about enough. 
It's it's actually quite interesting because, like you said, it's called Breakdance Boogie. It's if this is like '86, it's just after the let's say the birth of rap. I'm, yeah, um, and this is it's got a bit of the it's got a hip hop exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. sort of in there, but then with like punk rock guitars. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting hybrid. Yeah, and also it's kind of hard to. Um, take Chris seriously as a singer anyway <laughs> exactly um, yeah for those of you listening who are, don't know weird stuff like this and hard to find stuff like this you probably heard Chris singing uh, the introduction to um, Territorial Pissings mm-hmm. on the famous Nevermind album and uh, well I think that makes it pretty clear why they didn't uh, <laughs> yeah. proceed with him as a lead singer yeah. pretty soon after that I think um, uh, most of the times Kurt would do the vocals yep that project never went anywhere, I think, and and well, I think it's, it's rightly so. <laughs> it's part of a lot of projects in that time and the time after that because Kurt wanted to be in a band or wanted to lead a band, but he needed people for that. So now he could start with Chris to do some interesting stuff. But I think that he he was thinking about bands and being in a band and being a performer a lot. Uh, I think some people also said that he <laughs> he was more comfortable in the rehearsal room at first, just because he had all of those ideas about how a band should be. And he wasn't always certain that he was ready to do that. Yeah. So he had apparently long lists of all different kind of bands that they could be (laughs) (laughs) Uh, from cover bands to punk rock bands to like different names, different styles of music. So you could say that he was maybe even into, let's say, commercial side of being in a band already. Not commercial as in how can we make the most money, but commercial as in what sort of music could you play and what would people be interested in and, and what would we fit in. So I think he had a, a lot of ideas about that and, and they probably tried a lot of those ideas. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so too. One of the next projects they did uh, together was a band called The Sellouts mm. and they focused on uh, performing uh, uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival covers. Right. Yeah, well, that and the, the name of the band, I think, tells you all <laughs> yeah. you need to know. Yeah, uh, apparently he was amazed um, when he heard how much money uh, the guy from the Melvins got for a gig. Yep. Which probably wasn't even that much, but, you know, they were yep. his heroes. And exactly. he was, at this moment, he was working shitty jobs, yep. uh, never having any money to spend, uh, yep. not having a, a secure place to, uh, to stay even, yep. because he was, was still... Traveling around from from friends to relatives to, you know, um, hooking up with somebody (laughs) in a really, really lousy uh, home and then getting kicked out. So for him, it must have been amazing that somebody got a a couple of hundred dollars for a show. Yeah. So apparently that inspired him (laughs) and Chris uh, to start um, their Credence Clearwater Revival uh, cover band, The Sellouts. I don't think there are any recordings of The Sellouts. I don't think that Kurt was Mm. doing the vocals. No, I don't think so. Or not not at first, no. at least. I did find them performing a Bad Moon Rising, the CCR song, just two years later. So this is not the sellout. This is actually one of the uh, early, uh, well, Nirvana-ish bands. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they are playing uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival's a Bad Moon Rising. Bad Moon Rising. Bad Moon Rising. 
I was I, I, I was waiting for the for the, for yeah. the next section of the, the song. It, it doesn't sound that bad, does it? No, I think that I mean, without making too much of this, it shows again how Kurt and and here Chris as well his um, feel for music was because as they would do later in covers and and we already heard some covers in the previous episode. He is able to find something in an original song and then make that bigger and turn it into a new version that's interesting. Yeah. And, and for this one as well, the, the changes are mostly in the tempo and, and sort of the punk rock feel that it gets now. But it works. Yeah. And that's interesting. I think that it shows so much about their musicality. Yeah, and also it works great, uh, great with his voice. Yeah, yeah. I was just having a peek at my notes, and I think um, I think um, uh, Chris was actually singing those uh, cover songs. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Again, I, I already said it last time, but I got uh, the timeline from uh, LiveNirvana.com, yep. which is an excellent uh, website for stuff like this. They say that it was uh, Kurt on drums, Chris on guitar and vocals, and a guy named Steve Newman on bass. Okay. It also adds. Um, who later lost his fingers in a chainsaw accident. Ooh. So that's pretty... Uh, that's bad. Pretty sad, yeah. I believe they didn't ever perform these songs. No. It just was a couple of rehearsals and, uh, and that was it. I was just thinking about what you were saying about how Kurt thought like, oh, they get a lot of money and how can we do that? Because later on when they start their, let's say, pre-Nirvana band projects, Apparently, he never wanted to get paid because he thought that they weren't good enough yet. So yeah. he didn't want to uh, <laughs> yeah. burden everyone with getting paid and then having to perform to the standards of getting paid. Yeah. And I don't know. I see how what you're getting at. I, yeah. I, I think because, well, they were called the sellouts. Uh, of course. I, yeah. It was probably if they were ever going to perform with that band. <laughs> Uh, seek a way different audience. They yeah. probably wanted to play at, at parties exactly. or weddings or but, things but it, like that, and not, yeah. not in the cool underground no. scene where they. No, but that's interesting because he thought, well, okay, with cover bands and like you could probably get some money. But when they did their own material and tried to, to find their own music, he was really hesitant to put a price on that until it was really good. Yeah. Which is interesting, to yeah. say the least. Yeah, you're right. Maybe, maybe a bit stupid as well, because, <laughs> I mean, it's nice to earn money. Yeah, of but, course. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's been heavier than heaven that, that he refused to take any money and then... Uh, yeah, he got in a strife yeah. with one of the band members or something Yeah, like I think that. so. I or some, uh, some probably one of the members of the Melvins yeah. again, <laughs> who told him it was really stupid. He should never re refuse that. And yeah. then he took like a very small amount just for gas money, something yeah. like that. And it was the very earth, uh, first money he ever earned by playing <laughs> music. That was, that was the story, at least. Um, so that's what was going on in 1986. There were your very first steps. Then in 1987, uh, at the beginning of the year, they uh, meet a guy named Aaron Burkhardt, uh, who will become their very first drummer. Yep. I don't the really official first, first drummer. Yeah. I mean, they worked try. with drummers before that, but that was all 
still session work and ideas and, and yeah, not really band band yeah probably people who were just around there uh, hanging exactly. around and saying yeah. oh i can play drums and, yeah but I, I i don't i don't know um at least aaron burkhardt is usually credited as being yeah. the first drummer of nirvana yeah and also even I though they weren't called nirvana no. at the time but still no and also i think that that's a nice starting point for the first drummer because that was the first moment that they decided that that would be like a drummer and then Chris on bass and then Kurt singing in guitar. So, yeah. Yeah. So they started to, uh, to perform. Uh, they uh, played a gig in uh, March of uh, 1987 and they were called Skid Row at the time. Apparently they weren't aware of the fact that there was another band out there uh, called Skid Row uh, already, who were pretty successful, I think. Yeah, yeah, they were. I, I must admit, I don't know the timeline of when they were really big, but they were pretty successful. I mean, we knew them here in, in Europe as well. Um, I think they had a couple of hits and then went into oblivion again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I got one uh, Skid Row track lined up. Yeah. So this is not from the uh, pre-Nirvana Skid Row, <laughs> but from the, like, let's say, official Skid yeah. Row. Already there Skid <laughs> Row, you could say. This is called the 18 and Live. Yeah, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's weird how Kurt... On one side, he knew a lot about music, yeah. but on the other hand, he had very large gaps in his knowledge. Yeah, I think that he was very interested in everything that was punk rock and sometimes some side stuff, but he didn't really look beyond that. Although on the other hand, I think I read somewhere that they... When they went to gigs in the car, that they listened to like the Sugar Cubes and ABBA and ABBA, yeah. <laughs> lots of ABBA, lots of ABBA. Yeah. So I, but that was probably again the influence of of Chris, not specifically ABBA, but more of the European kind of bands. I mean, Sugar Cubes yeah. was like Björk's band before she went solo, and most people didn't even know that back yeah. then. So. Yeah, I always got the impression uh, impression that when he liked something, he could really, really be obsessed with it, and he wanted yeah. to hear every song and know everything about it. But then he didn't; he never got the, the broader picture. No, and and again, don't forget that we're talking pre-internet uh, <laughs> timeline yeah. here. So, in order to know about new music, you need to listen to the radio. You need to. Uh, read magazines, watch TV, and if you read magazines that are, for instance, not about pop music, then how would you know the yeah. more popular music? That's right. So don't judge them, you <laughs> podcast listeners, <laughs> exactly. with your easy lives, with, you know, internet, internet bringing yeah. all the information right to you. Uh, anyway, they were called Skid Row for, for quite some time, uh, actually. Uh, they started to do uh, shows in uh, 1987. Um, I don't have a recording of the very first show. I don't know if it even exists. But I do have a recording from another show from, uh, from the same year. Uh, so let's, uh, let's have a listen to some songs uh, from that show. Uh, I'm going to start off with a Pan Cap Chew. Yeah. A song that uh, later also uh, would enter the Nirvana catalog, yeah. I think. And... Oh, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> I just wanted to say that I think that Pen Cap Chew was actually also 
one of the band names they that's right uh, yeah yeah <laughs> they used it as a band name as well yeah okay that's um, we're going to postpone the song just a bit more. Um, Kurt had a habit of, you know, using titles for different projects. Yep. We already um, uh, mentioned the the jury project, the recordings of uh, Chris and Kurt and two guys from Screaming Trees. Yep. And apparently uh, Kurt wanted to call that band Lithium. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> the, the name didn't make it, so he used it for a very well-known song. song. Yep. Yeah. And, and like we said last time, often titles of Nirvana songs don't specifically come back in the lyrics. No. <laughs> so yeah, I think he just liked words and sentences and yeah. Yeah, and maybe at this uh, point in his life, uh, three of his favorite words were pen, cap and chew. <laughs> okay, so here's the song. <laughs> That was it. Any any thoughts? Well, in this period, I think they they went more the the heavy route. You still hear the the punk rock influences, but there's also a bit of heavy metal sound in there, yeah. which is interesting. Which is also something that became more popular at that moment. So I think that that was a major influence on them trying to find their own sound. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, here's another um, Kurt Cobain written song called If You Must. It's it's a great song and, and apparently they bended it quite soon. There's stories about Kurt saying later that he hated that song and that it was evil or whatever. It's evil? <laughs> yeah, oh. no idea why, but I mean, it, this song is, it sounds like vintage Nirvana to me. Um, it it could really have fit on their albums. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, fun fact, this is one of the only, um, probably the only song, but don't quote me on that, <laughs> that is not in like straight four, four measures. So it's six, eight, which is rare, uh, musically speaking, for Nirvana songs. Yeah. Uh, they had a couple of covers that are uh, like uh, three, four, or in this case, six, eight. It makes an interesting difference. <laughs> yeah. Does it also say something about Aaron Burkhardt as a drummer I oh, believe he's playing this by the way I'm yeah I, I think sure. he is I think he is that's interesting actually because that that could have well been his influence I mean it makes sense for the drummer to have a lot of influence on the uh, measure of the yeah, song and, yeah uh, and also I mean um, he would be able to perform at least that and I'm yep. not an expert on drumming <laughs> but I think uh, it'll be harder to do uh, to pull off stuff like that than a basic uh, um, fourth fourth, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's it's yeah, it's it acquires a bit more finesse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Also interesting is that uh, at the beginning of their career, uh, they played quite a lot of covers. Yeah. Uh, in the last episode, I quoted Kurt from his uh, um, 
notebook where he said, uh, no, you, you should focus <laughs> on playing your, yep. or at least I wanted to focus on uh, writing my own material, yep. which he did. Yeah. But he also said, yeah, because if you perform uh, too many cover songs, then you'll get influenced too much, something like that. But, well, they just uh, tried to start a cover band. <laughs> and also they played a lot of covers in their live shows, yeah. uh, especially from uh, Led Zeppelin yeah. in the beginning. Um, so you want to hear a, a small clip of Heartbreaker, the Zeppelin song, uh, the way it sounded um, when they were still called Skid Row. So, um, what do you think suits them better, uh, playing uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival <laughs> or Led Zeppelin? Well, to be honest, the, the CCR cover that we listened to is more interesting, I think, than this one, because this one is pretty close to the original. On the other hand, I can imagine how a Led Zeppelin cover like this one would fit into their performance at that yeah. time. It makes sense within the realm of the rest of their songs um, in that period. Yeah, they played quite a lot of Led Zeppelin uh, yeah. uh, covers. I think it's pretty funny because in the first episode you mentioned that uh, his <laughs> guitar teacher uh, said that he uh, really wanted to learn the uh, intro to Stairway of Heaven. Yeah, like everyone. Uh, Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> to heaven. Um, and that he later denied that. But, you know, the recordings of all the Led Zeppelin stuff they did pretty yeah. much proves they, it. But well, they didn't do Stairway to Heaven, right? No, I don't think they ever played <laughs> Stairway to Heaven. No. Well, maybe to mock it. Yeah. Sort of, but I don't, I don't think I've ever heard them play no. that. They did do an uh, immigrant song at one point. Right. Also, I remember having read that uh, Kurt was sometimes pretty disappointed that uh, cover songs in their set, especially that Zeppelin cover songs, the audience was more enthusiastic about that than to his own original song. Yeah. So that's. But that makes sense because people always tend to like the songs that they know. Even if you're playing your own songs, and people like, oh yeah, that's the hit, yay! And then when the artist says, well, I'm going to play a new song that you haven't heard before, you're like, yeah! Great, we're going to go uh, get some beers and then we'll come back. (laughs) And then then later on when it's a hit, you can say, yeah, I heard it for the very first time (laughs) at the game. That's true. But then again, I can imagine that for um, uh, Kurt uh, at that point, you know, uh, starting out with his band, yeah. writing his own material, being insecure about that, it must be a, a bummer that, you know, playing a cover song is always the big success. And uh, yeah. well, I don't think it was a big success always. Uh, it was just, I uh, to, think. To it, put things in perspective, I yeah. think they played crowds of maybe 20 people sometimes exactly. at this point. So I don't think that those covers were more successful. I just think that because the audience recognize them you sort of get a bit more feeling for uh, yeah. a bit more engagement with the audience but yeah just, that's it yeah you're probably right but they took uh, their um, their stuff pretty seriously and their band pretty seriously yeah. i mean kurt cobain had finally found some people exactly. to start a legit band with a lot of rehearsals a lot of rehearsals yeah we'll uh, get to that later <laughs> uh, they also made a, a demo tape i think they made it in a uh, radio studio yep. at night. They kind of knew um, they had a new one st- of the DJs, some, exactly. something like that. Yep. So they could uh, play there. And I think everything was played live. So they didn't use like several tracks or remixes no, or stuff like that. No, obviously it's like a radio recording studio would just have the basic setup and not a yeah. whole mixing panel. Yeah. 
But still, I mean, it's a pretty big step up from, you know, just having a boom box <laughs> recorded or go to your aunt uh, to use her four-track <laughs> exactly. recorder. So um, that resulted in what uh, mostly is referred to as uh, the Skid Row tape. So I've got them uh, lined up here. There's quite some familiar titles in there uh, uh, already, like uh, Floyd the Barber. So uh, Kurt had already written that song. Also, there are some strange cover songs like uh, Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Want to hear that one? Or? Yeah. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> That's probably a, a pretty bad example. I think they just played that uh, to, yeah. to goof around. Because this is the one where Chris actually exactly, turned yeah. to lead vocals again. No, that, that wasn't what they were doing. I was just saying, yeah, they took it really seriously. Yeah. And then, now we come up with this. No, let's... Yeah, but don't don't forget. I mean, they took their music seriously, but also they like drank a lot and goofed around. And yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, true. Uh, but to balance uh, things out, uh, let's also have a listen to uh, Hairspray Queen. And this is where you can hear that this version of this song later uh, would be released i think it's on the uh, incesticide yep. album yep. It's on yeah yeah it, it, it's a cool song i think it's, yep. it's, it's weird but it has some <laughs> it, it's strange quality yeah it definitely has and i think that already here in this sort of demo like version you can hear it's a pretty tight band at that moment i mean the drummer is is going for it and they're all really nice and paced and uh it really sounds like a like a tight band at yeah. that moment yeah it's got a really weird bass line yep <laughs> so i think uh, chris was uh, experimenting with that as well yeah or maybe kurt just wrote it that way that's also yep. possible i don't know uh I know sometimes he would um, write the bass part as well yeah but not always so no idea about this song specifically like. no no but it's, it's an interesting tape and i think uh, kurt sent it out Yep. to um, record labels and friends and people he thought was were maybe uh, able to help him out just yep. to, to get the, the band going. So um, at the summer uh, of that year, in September, um, Kurt moved in with his uh, then-time... Uh, then-time? It's yep. not English, is it? <laughs> it's then-girlfriend, I think. His then-girlfriend, <laughs> yeah. right. So moved in with his uh, girlfriend uh, at the time... Of the time. I don't At know. I'm totally confused about my English. Uh, did I already do the, the disclaimer that we're not native speakers? We're not 
British or Americans. But if so. people haven't heard that by now, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> yeah, true, true. But, you know, maybe they thought that we were really weird or drunk or anything. I don't know. So, Kurt had a girlfriend. Yes. Her name was Tracy Miranda. She would um, go to gigs as well and yep. uh, take photographs of them. Yep. Uh, one, of the, one of which would become really famous because it made it to the front cover of uh, the Bleach, Bleach album. album. And uh, in September of 1987, um, they move in together and they uh, go live um, in Olympia, quite nearby College Town, I believe. Yes. And I think that was pretty pretty important move for him because, well, Kurt desperately wanted to get out of Aberdeen. Yep. He later said that he actually wanted to move to Seattle, but he didn't have anybody to go with him and he was too afraid to um, do it on his own. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, Seattle is uh, big and intimidating when you come from a place like Aberdeen. Olympia was a nice move just because it was a college town. Um, lots of young people, more other musical influences going around there. Um, college radio, obviously, pretty important there. Uh, so that all had an influence, um, I think. From what I've read about it is that there was more like a cultural and artistic scene there. Yeah. But Kurt didn't really participate in it. No. I mean, he probably felt liberated in a way. But then again, he just most of the time he stayed uh, inside their home uh, creating uh, artwork with weird dolls and paintings and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah. And, and writing then, songs, yeah. watching TV. And he wasn't going out to, you know, to be part of the artistic crowd no, or anything no he was more focused on on being alone and focusing on his own things than going out there and seeing what was happening um, yeah. which makes sense at that time in his life yeah but then again i'm sure that they went to shows and parties exactly. and, and stuff like that so yeah. he would probably meet more people of his own kind mm -hmm. to say well any other way around i mean at, at the the moment that you're living in a uh, town that has a student population and you're in a band and people hear that there is this band and there's somebody in there that lives in your town. Yeah. Uh, that helps. So <laughs> there is a bigger audience to, uh, to pluck from, I think. Also a, a bigger uh, potential of uh, uh, people to, to find a decent drummer. <laughs> exactly. Because uh, they lost uh, their, their, their drummer uh, during that year. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not quite sure why Aaron Burkhardt quit the, the band or was kicked out of the band. Yeah, I believe was he was arrested. Yeah. There, I, there was a story behind it. I just don't no, know I, it. And I, also, I'm afraid to, to, um, <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to tell the story about the wrong drummer now. Because <laughs> exactly. they had quite a lot of them. It's, it's pretty yeah. confusing, all the drummers. Uh, yeah, and some drummers they worked with and then they left and then they came back and they, they did session work and some of the, the people from the Melvins and stuff like that. So there's a lot of coming and going of drummers. Yeah. Um, not blowing up, thankfully. <laughs> which is Not what happened know. in Spinal Tap. Like, if people don't know that movie, it's, um, it's a mockumentary about um, a hard rock band. It's amazingly funny. It's from 1984, I think. And I know Kurt loved that movie. Apparently, he watched it a couple of times with his dad. Um, but they have this, this uh, running gag in, <laughs> in that movie that they keep losing their drummers. Um, and they even blow up on stage. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that didn't happen with 
Nirvana or pre-Nirvana, I think, but no. <laughs> they uh, they had a lot of drummers uh, coming and going. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So they basically lost the first one um, somewhere at the end of 1987. Aaron yep. Burkhardt, I, I think he got arrested or something like that. Anyway, they lost a drummer. So um, October uh, in October, uh, Kurt placed an uh, uh, advert uh, in the Rocket, which was like an underground magazine, I believe. Um, and it read, a serious drummer wanted, underground attitude, black flag, Melvin Zeppelin, scratch acid, Ethel Merman, versatile as heck, Kurt, and then his number. But I don't know if a lot of people applied, because um, in December of that year, um, they recruited Dale Crover, the drummer of the Melvins, uh, who had already jammed with them. Yeah, so, they played with him before. Yeah, so they probably uh, already knew that he was good and was a yeah. cool guy, but also that he was playing in other bands as well, so I think yep. he wasn't fully committed to the band. No, but maybe, I'm not sure, but there was a moment around that time that the Melvins sort of temporarily broke up uh, because uh, Buzz moved to California. Oh, right. So this might have been around that same time. So that's why he was available. Yeah, that could have explained why he was available. Not sure yeah. I'd have to look that up for exact timeline, but yeah. that could be the same yeah, or he just for some reason had time or whatever. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he joined them, well, at least uh, temporarily. And I think it was pretty important. Uh, I'd like to read a quote uh, from, uh, what's his name again? Jack and Dino, the producer of their, yeah. also, uh, of their first album, also of their first demo. In the uh, liner notes of the uh, With the Lights Out box set, he said about Kurt, um, he just said, Hi, my name is Kurt. I'm from Aberdeen and I'm friends with the Melvins. We want to come in and record some songs really fast. We've got Dale Crover from the Melvins helping us out on drums. And I thought, well, uh, it's not going to be some shitty band if Dale's playing with them. Yeah, come on up. They showed up right afternoon. That's weird, isn't it? They showed up right mm -hmm. afternoon. No. And, and they that were... same day, probably he called at 9 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And they came the same ah. afternoon. Ah. Afternoon. Right. 12. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, they were out the door by 6. It was the best thing I'd heard in a while in, at the studio. I kind of screwed it up, but that's what uh, Jack and Dino <laughs> said. Um, so apparently, um, just, you know, name-dropping Dale Crover uh, helped, helped them get studio time. Probably uh, Jack and Dino took them just a bit more seriously. Yep. Maybe paid a bit more attention, put a bit, uh, bit more effort. Um, but um, then he also it. liked them. Yeah, which absolutely. is nice. I mean, they came in because he knew Dale, but when they walked out, he was impressed. Yeah, them, so that's good. Yeah, that, that, that's really good because not everybody was impressed with the band. No, a lot of the times people thought they were pretty shitty. Yeah. at least at live shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, probably that's that's also because they were still so much experimenting, and also because Kurt was he was still thinking about what sort of band they would be, and reluctant to actually do gigs i think they did a lot of rehearsing and then he had to be pushed to yeah. <laughs> to gigs <laughs> and he would beforehand he was he was certain that they they wouldn't like them i assume that that didn't really help and sometimes they apparently drank too much yeah which didn't chris, help either I mean, especially chris at that he, moment yeah yeah he was developing a serious uh, drinking problem yep. already I, I think but but yeah a lot of those stories <laughs> were how chris was really drunk and Making a fool out of himself. And exactly. They uh, well, they would do all kind of weird things to just to stand out, you know. Yeah. 
painter necks red, so <laughs> yeah. as rednecks, and yep. use fake blood and stuff like that, which you know would pro- probably you know not benefit the quality of the no. music or the show or or anything. But at least when they um, showed up uh, in January the next year uh, to record the demo, uh, Jack and Dino was pretty uh, pretty impressed. Before we get to tell a, a bit more about that, let's listen to some songs of the demo. Um, there's some uh, songs uh, on there that actually uh, got uh, remixed and put on uh, Nirvana's first album. So let's not pick uh, those. We'll talk about them later. Yeah. <laughs> not we this will. episode. Um, so anyone want to request? Oh, maybe we can uh, listen to Spank through. Oh, yeah. We listened to that on the last episode yep. when they uh, first demoed it uh, on the Fecal Matter demo. Yep. And now it sounds uh, a lot better, I think. <laughs> Once again, my love I need you back Yeah, that was a spank throughout. I think they took a really big leap uh, yeah. from the fecal matter tape to, to this, especially in Kurt's singing. Yep, it's great. It it I I love it when he sings like this, and it's I think it it probably um, because of the influence of other band members being able to really play with him that he could probably focus a bit more on how he would sing it. Yeah, cool. And I, I think it, it, it has something to do with uh, his confidence. Yep. And if he was, yeah, if, if he had the guts to put himself out there yep. and really go for it. Yep. And he isn't quite there just yet <laughs> on this recording, but you can... Yep. You can hear that it's coming. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's growing in a, in a major yeah. way, uh, I think. Yep. And, and also, I think that obviously he and the others came from the punk rock scene, which is much more of a fuzzy sound. And that's what you hear in the, the previous recording in the Fecal Matter stuff. And this is already becoming that more clear Nirvana sound yeah. um, that really focuses on the, the different parts of the instruments and, and shows the melody line. Um, so that's interesting to hear as well. Well, like we said, um, Jack Andino, who produced the demo, um, he was like the big local producer. I think I think most bands from that scene who would do a demo would uh, end up at uh, yep. those studio- studios and meet him as a producer. Um, and he also apparently spread the word about the demo and that uh, he really liked it yep. and that they were a good band. And I believe that the guys who just uh, a couple of years before um, uh, started Sub Pop Records um, they got, uh, heard heard of the band through Jack and Dino in yeah. a positive way. So that's kind of how they got on their radar. Yeah. But um, they're not even called Nirvana yet at <laughs> <No>. this point. <laughs> they're called, I think they're called Ted and Fred. Oh, yeah. That was one because, of those band names. <laughs> yeah, that was one of those stupid band names. Yeah. <laughs> but um, after doing this demo, they did a, a performance. They had, they had a show at the uh, Tacoma Community World Theater. And um, they were on the bill as Ted and Fred. Right. So I guess that was their name at that point. Yeah, probably. And, uh, and they would change it just, just a bit, uh, a couple of months later, I think. I think, uh, yeah, a month later, they would uh, change it to Nirvana. Yeah. 
after also considering throat, throat oyster, like you said, pen cap chew, window frame, and bliss. Yes, I, I think there was, I don't know if that was in this period or before, but there was also like incompetent fools as one of the potential <laughs> band names, <laughs> which I always find really funny. <laughs> I mean yeah. that's that's sort of the you can you can just I think everybody who's been in a band or or dabbled in stuff like that knows this like you think like, what should our name be and you want it to be iconic and then you have you end up with a whole list of weird stuff yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely it, it, and well in the end they they uh, decided on uh, Nirvana which uh, again was a name uh, that was already used being used by uh, by another band yep. I, th- I believe they had to settle that later and. Anyway, um, I think the, uh, Kurt was pretty happy with the demo as well. He sent it out to uh, quite a lot of labels, especially yep. uh, Touch and & Go and SST were, were, were his favorites. I believe he uh, used to send um, uh, some gifts along with them, <laughs> like weird puppets or <laughs> condoms with plastic ants in them. Ooh, I don't see how that would help. <laughs> no, me neither. Well, it maybe it would help um, to stand out. Yep. Could so be. maybe that's, that's something. And also he would write him a note like uh, uh, offering to pay for the recording himself. Yeah. So he was pretty desperate to, yeah. get, to get a label. But he didn't send it to Sub Pop Records. No, no. <laughs> which is quite interesting. Maybe you should explain a bit about Sub Pop because yeah, not please. everybody knows about them, I guess. I mean, back in the days um, when Sub Pop emerged, I think that record labels especially indie record labels were much more important um this was before the time of like self-publishing like you can do now with the internet you can like throw your stuff out there without having a label and and people all around the world can listen to it and see you that wasn't the case (laughs) back then and having uh, the right kind of label was really important because uh the label that you were signed to said a lot about your credibility so there were like big labels like warner brothers stuff like that uh but also small ones and uh the guys who started sub pop um they wanted to be a um smaller independent label but with big ambitions and they had some um European labels that they looked up to, uh, for instance, uh, Rough Trade. They had like the Smiths back then. Rough Trade still exists. Um, if you are ever in London, they have a great record store as well. <laughs> but they were really big. Like if you were on Rough, Rough Trade, you knew like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, Island, um, who had like you two. Um, Prince had started his own label, Paisley Park, because he wanted to go from the big labels and have huh. this whole... So the sub-pop guys were like, we're going to do that as well. Um, and we're going to build a label and we're going to be interesting. So they were really on the lookout for what's interesting in our scene. Yeah. Um, and how can we build up like the smaller rock bands and be special as a label and have people be interested in our little niche yeah and they were really good at it they were really good at it yeah so basically then there were uh, there were two guys jonathan Poneman, who um i believe he, he had some money uh, at hand because of an uh, inheritance yeah so he was like the the investor and bruce pavitt who i think started out uh, as, as a journalist yeah did he write for a rocket as well I don't know. The magazine I'm not where sure. Kurt, Kurt, Kurt yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But no. but that, that that was his his background. Yeah. 
But Kurt, maybe he didn't know them. Maybe he didn't think they were a good option. I don't know. But he never sent out uh, his demo no. to them. But Jack and Dino did pass on yes. the demo uh, yep. to those guys. And I don't think they were immediately that impressed. No, no not from the, from the start. They were interested, but they didn't think it was the next big thing. Basically. No. No, but then again, they were willing uh, to give him a, a, a chance. So I think they checked out some gigs. Yeah. And uh, they invited them to come and play um, at like a showcase uh, event. Yeah. They, they, at that time, they had um, showcases around the area with bands that they might be interested in. Just put them on there, see what they would do. They would invite, at least they said they would invite like some people <laughs> to be there. But I think there were some like... <laughs> Horrible showcases where like nobody or two yeah, people probably. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, I heard uh, Bruce Pavitt uh, say um, that um, they weren't very impressed with uh, Nirvana's uh, stage performance because mm. they were mostly uh, staring at the ground. <laughs> yeah, they weren't very impressed by his songwriting, uh, but they did really like Kurt's voice. Yeah, and also they thought that uh, one particular song really, really uh, stood out. And that song was called Love Buzz. Which was a cover. <laughs> yeah, it was a cover song. Should we play, maybe we should play the original now and hold on to the Nirvana Fair version just a yeah. bit longer. Just okay, so first, um, I think uh, Love Buzz is on a, an, an old um, record that Chris had. Yeah, Maybe Chris he picked was, it up in Europe, I don't know. I, I think he probably did. And, and he introduced it at least to... Kurt and said like this is interesting let's do a cover yeah and it's uh, yeah, we can have a little celebration because um love Bus is originally written and performed by the shocking blue which is a dutch band Yay. so we score some points there okay <laughs> let's first listen to the original version To get, the, to get the basic idea. Yep. It wasn't a very well-known song. Because if there's one song of the Shocking Blue that you actually know, it's probably this one. Skip to the chorus. That's the shocking blue for you right yeah. there. And it's um, um, these are songs from the 60s and the 70s, if yeah. you didn't <laughs> hear already, it from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they were quite old already. Um. Yeah. And if you know that last song called Venus uh, in a different version, that's probably Bananarama. Yep. <laughs> we covered it in the 1980s, I think, Yeah, well. I think 85, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And um, for some reason, Nirvana decided to cover it. And it was a very good move because... Well, it was apparently one of the highlights of their life sets always. Yep. And it's, it's basically what, what interested the guy from uh, Sub Pop Records to, uh, to have a meeting with them. Yep. And that meeting is pretty weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because Chris showed up really drunk. 
I believe he had a bottle of wine hidden under the table and <laughs> and he thought nobody was looking <laughs> looking he he drank from it and he was shouting at other people like hey what are you looking at really stupid so yeah. they must have made a really bad impression I think yeah I think so as well on the other hand I think the sub pop guys were used to a bit of weird rock antics because they weren't True. the only ones uh, with that behavior or those uh, abuse problems <laughs> at yeah, that moment. Yeah, that's that's true. They, do, they want to do a single of Love Bus. Yeah. That yeah. was basically their idea and then maybe just see how it would go. And yeah. I think especially uh, Kurt was a bit disappointed by that because he wanted to make uh, tons of records and albums and stuff like yeah. that. He had very big uh, ideas about that and then, you know, getting out with that just a deal for one single that was yeah. probably a bit disappointing. But then again, it was a record deal. Exactly. And I think that one of the reasons that they said let's do a single was also because Sub Pop had this idea about doing like a single of the month club or something like yeah. that. So it fit into their business plan yeah. to do a single. Or, or typical, a, a weird choice that they wanted to do Love Bus as a single because it didn't really fit their catalog, I think. No. I mean, it's a pop song. It's a cover. Well, we just yeah. heard the original version. Well, I, I think that probably they had no idea it was a cover. I don't think the original was well known, um, which is actually a shame uh, for people who listen to this now and like, oh, yeah, I never heard that original. Please listen to the whole of it, not just because it's great, the original, but also because it's another great example of how Nirvana was able to take something interesting from a single and then make something else out of yeah. it. But maybe because it was so different, the guys from Sub Pop were interested. I can, I can see how that would make sense because it's a sort of, it's a quaint song in the original and in the Nirvana version. It has some sort of like Arabic influences in the sound. Yeah. And so they might have thought like, it stands out somehow. Yeah, and it, it, it did. It absolutely did. Um, but first, we have to go back to the drummer um, yep. soap opera. <laughs> because Dale Crover left the band, I think, not with a fight or because he wasn't good enough, but just because he had other things to do. Yep. He was just filling in. And he recommended a guy named Dave Foster. So um, they played with him for, for a while. But then they had to let him go <laughs> as well. And um, in the uh, one of his uh, journals, uh, Kurt wrote out a letter to Dave to uh, to let him know um, that they were ditching him. Uh, this le letter never was sent out, I think, but it reads as follows: Dave, a band needs to practice, in our opinion, at least five times a week if a band ever expects to accomplish anything. We're tired of that uncertainty every time we play a show. We think, are we going to suck? Are we tight yet? We have shows and we don't practice. The two main reasons are Chris and his work and you and your location. Uh, Chris can um, eventually alter his work schedule and at least practice every weeknight. When we started with you, you claimed you could make it up four times a week and would move up here by July or August and would be no problem with, uh, for you. Now, blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on and on. <laughs> we know how long it takes to build a house. <laughs> Uh, in our uh, morals and values, fixing up a racing car isn't half as, a, uh, as important as getting a practice. <laughs> so apparently, oh. instead of moving closer to Kurt and Chris, he chose to uh, fix yeah. his racing car, <laughs> which yeah. doesn't sound really rock and roll. Yeah. 
And he, he also said, uh, getting a name on a record isn't shit. Anybody can do it. But there's a big difference between uh, credentials and notoriety and self-respect through music. Wow. So basically, they just uh, want to get rid of him. And he wrote a really elaborate letter to tell him <laughs> that and never send it out. <laughs> yeah, it's also pretty fun. We feel really shitty that we don't have the guts to tell you in person. All the luck to you and your drumming career. <laughs> and if you wouldn't mind, we would like to suggest to other bands looking for drummers to check you out because your talent shouldn't go to waste. Aw, that's sweet. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's also really funny that at the end, there's a small PS to Dave's girlfriend, Lanny. Thanks for driving Dave up all the time. I know what an awful drive it is, Shelley. I enjoyed spending time with you while they were practicing. Call us sometime. We can get together and do something, Tracy. Aww. <laughs> yeah. So, but your friends never... were friends. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> they got rid of Dave Foster. But remember, he was one of the many drummers yep. of, uh, of Nirvana. Kurt had to write uh, an, an ad again. And this time it read... Um, Heavy light punk rock band Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, uh, Led Zeppelin, Black Flag, uh, Black Sabbath, Scratch Acid, Butthole Surfer, Seeks Drummers, and one of the replies came from a guy called Chad Channing. Yes, and that may um, be a familiar name if you ever studied, for instance, uh, the uh, liner notes of uh, the album Bleach. Yep. Or uh, I think he's on some of the songs of uh, Incesticide yep, as well. Yep, as well. At least they uh, they they uh, found a new uh, a new drummer who uh, well, yeah. who would stick for quite quite some time. Yeah, I think that it's unfortunate for him as well that they forgotten in the bigger realm of things because he was quite important during that time, and and a lot of people probably think that Dave Grohl was on all the records. Yeah, a couple of years ago when um, Nirvana got inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Apparently, there was a rumor that Chad Channing would be inducted as well. Right. And then somebody had to call him up and say, no, it's just going to be uh, <laughs> Chris yes. and Dave. Well, and Kurt, of course, yeah. but he wasn't. Uh, yeah, he, he always strikes me as a very, very nice guy. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's a bit sad that he... Uh, he's he, like he, the fifth Beatle, he's but like the fifth. different. <laughs> No, I, no, I, I, no, no, but like the the Pete Best, yeah, the like Pete the, like the, the drummer yeah. who got kicked yeah. out before they got Just famous, before, yeah. yeah. But he got to do quite some cool yep. uh, stuff because he was uh, there for the recording of the, the first single. It was in June nineteen eighty eight. Let's see uh, at Reciprocal Studios again, where they also recorded the demo with uh, Jack and Dino for their producer, and in five hours uh, they got. Uh, Love Buzz, uh, Big Cheese, Spank Through, and Blandest. I, I believe they wanted Blandest to be the B-side at yep. first. And then and Dino said, no, you should pick a stronger song. Maybe uh, put uh, Big Cheese on there. I think it's uh, funny that, again, they tried Spank Through, but they didn't put it on. No. For some it, reason, they never put it on an no, official album. It always got cut somewhere, which is yeah. weird. Because yeah. it's it's a good song. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Sub Pop would later release it on a Sub Pop 200 box set. Some, right, yeah. Some it's on there. Yeah. 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 They, they, in the end, they decided to put uh, Love Buzz. Well, that was the A side. And then 
Big Cheese was the B exactly. side. Should we explain A sides and B sides <laughs> on, on singles as well? Or? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm assuming that everybody who listens knows this, but yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, let's if, have a listen. If you to don't, just uh, look it up on the internet. Yeah. Uh, so whenever I listen to the Love Bus single, wanna throw in the original version just a bit more first, and then yeah, and then to the Nirvana version. Yeah. Okay, let's do that. Please don't deceive me when I hurt you. It just ain't the way you see. this small sound collage yeah I, th- I think uh, Kurt also wanted to have that on the album but he forgot to bring uh, the tape <laughs> wow so he was pretty uh, disappointed that he couldn't but he w- really he really wanted to put that on there it's saying a lot because it's a weird choice for a single to start that way yeah I, I, I can Im- song. yeah I can imagine that when it was played on the radio or whatever that they probably skipped that part because that's not like radio <laughs> yeah but <laughs> still yeah Kurt really uh, yeah. insisted on having it on there uh, yeah. the original version was a lot, a, a lot longer, longer as well yeah, yeah. so I yeah. think that that's interesting because um, it says something about his more experimental and artistic ambitions yeah. he, he did a lot with those collages and, and weird yeah. sound effects and it also translates in his visual arts as well so it's definitely something that's important to him a lot of songs that we've just heard um, are rock songs or pop songs or a combination of the two but uh, in 1988 he also made some uh, home demos which show a completely different side of him yeah which yeah sh- shows that uh, experimental side that uh, you know making do those collages and weird songs and stuff like that one of those songs is called beans yep <laughs> so <laughs> let's listen to that It's a minute and a half. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is quite a long minute and a half. He actually wanted to put that on Bleach. He, he, <laughs> yeah. he really wanted to do that. Yeah. And I think it would have made a weird 
uh, addition to the album. Yeah. But also, you know, it, w- it would have uh, shown a different side of the band as well. Yeah, definitely. A bit it- less serious and a bit more experimental yeah. and different than what was out on Sub Pop Records at that time. Yeah, yeah. Another song uh, from that uh, demo is called uh, Clean Up Before She Comes. And I'll throw that in as well. Something in her eyes must be a smoke from What's interesting, I think, is that here you hear that those harmonizing vocals that are really specific to later Nirvana songs as well. Yeah. Um, and, and you can already hear them in here. Yeah. So he had an experimental side. He had a, a pop side, which, you know, like you said, singing harmonies and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And he had more of a rock side. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, because they were um, signed by, uh, well, not just signed, but they were... <laughs> Sub Pop agreed to release one of their records. They were, they felt they were forced to focus on the rock yep. side yep. of them. Yeah, I don't know how much Sub Pop uh, forced uh, them into that, but they were finding their their rock niche. They came into the the whole grunge thing was happening. Yeah. Um, so they, like I said before, they they knew how to be a commercial um, label. A commercial, yeah. <laughs> a, a niche commercial, but still. So I can imagine them trying to fill up their their whole lineup with things that were more rock grungy. Um, yeah, I think so too. But I, I'm I'm often wondering what would have happened if one of the other labels would have uh, picked yep. up on them. Maybe if they would have gotten a deal with uh, Touch and Go Records, they were the the uh, record company that uh, had signed uh, Butthole Servers yep. and Scratch Acid, both bands, Kurt was a big fan of, but yep. they were also uh, a lot more experimental. Yep. definitely. So maybe then Kurt would have said, well, then I'm going to uh, put forward my more experimental yep. side. And maybe if like KE Records or something like that from Olympia would have picked up on them, he would, you know, play more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as he would say, wimpy pop music. Exactly, I mean, he could write that as well. Yeah. So mm. yeah, this this sort of the, these choices forced him, and I mean forced within quotes, but uh, they went into that rock grunge version much more, and that later on, I mean, we'll probably come to that in in a couple of episodes, but that became a burden as well because you got that whole grunge Seattle scene, which was sort of made up sort of real that was yeah. <laughs> i mean that that was nice uh, publicity wise but it also influenced what they released and what they didn't so yeah. yeah so the weird thing is that they recorded love bus it was finished in uh july uh but it wasn't released until uh november for some reason the label was just starting out and there yeah. were some problems with Pretty much everything. Yep. <laughs> and it was the first single um, that was a part of their uh, singles club. Yep. So apparently only 1,200 copies were made and the first 1,000 of them were hand numbered. Yep. And they were just sent out to people who signed up for the singles club. Yep. Yeah. Which which actually became a success because I think that Nirvana 
weren't too <laughs> happy about the whole singles club thing because they didn't yeah. know if it was going to work. Yeah, they wanted to have their singles in the store. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And not be an exclusive. I mean, if, if you're a band just starting out, you don't want to be an exclusive because nobody knows you. So you just want to be in stores and out there for everybody to, to buy. Yeah. Not part of a, uh, a subscription model. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then again, like you said, it was a success. Uh, yeah. Kurt told everybody uh, uh, very proudly that it was already sold out. Yeah. Which was, uh, well, doable when you have only uh, uh, <laughs> like thousands, uh, thousands of yeah. copies. And also it got great, great reviews, I think. Yeah. It was received very well. Yeah. And that kind of... Um, led to um, Sub Pop uh, wanting to do uh, a whole album with the band. Yeah. Or f- first an EP, I believe, and yeah. then and later then they, the they agreed on doing, uh, on yeah. doing an album, which yeah. was pretty uh, Doing pretty EPs important. was uh, more usual in that time because you could spread the, uh, the, the financial risks and um, it makes sense to, to put a bit of money in there. And people were used to buying like EPs, which are like... In between singles and albums for the people who are <laughs> yeah. used to Spotify. Yeah, but for a guy like Kurt who wrote a lot of songs and had, yeah. had big big plans and ambitions, he just wanted to uh, put out a, 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 full album. a proper album. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he got the chance uh, from the guy from Sub, uh, Sub Pop. So uh, I, d- I still don't think at this moment that from the whole Seattle uh, scene, uh, anybody was expecting them to blow up and nope. become the big, uh, the big names because, uh, well... I think a Soundgarden, a Mudhoney, and Mother Lovebone were like the big. Yep, they were the big ones from, uh, yeah. at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, um, but at least they got a chance to make an album, and uh, yeah, that's uh, an album that later became very famous because when Nirvana made it big, well, everybody started looking for more Nirvana stuff. Exactly. And they uh, came across uh, the Bleach album, uh, which will be the subject of our next podcast. Yep. I think we're gonna do side A as a podcast and then side B as a second yep. one because there's a lot, a uh, lot to talk about the songs on uh, on Bleach. Uh, so, anything in your notes that we forgot to talk about or you wanna um, add or correct? Yeah, there's one thing that I think it might be weird to end on a song that's not a Nirvana song, <laughs> but. Um, um, to put into perspective what the the musical world was at that moment, like Nirvana were were um, coming up in a in a period where there was a big transition. Um, there was more uh, rock becoming mainstream. Um, they had the whole punk revolution. Um, but um, then the heavy metal came that became even a serious almost mainstream music yeah. um, if you look at um, was, was, was Metallica already uh, yeah, Metallica, a big name by, by yeah, them? Okay. yeah they were already there and um, I was checking out the uh, the, the MTV um, uh, listings um, like we said last time like MTV was major back then they were leading in what was interesting in music um, in 1989 when they had their their MTV Video Music Awards, which was about the songs from the year before yeah. that, uh, they added a, um, a category for heavy metal for the first time, and they added a category which they called uh, postmodern, <laughs> okay. which is like a weird sort of thing. But like REM won that 
award. So yeah. you have an idea about what sort of music that was. They weren't um, using the, the term alternative. No, then. exactly. Uh, yeah. I think postmodern is what we now would call alternative. But things were changing. If you look at the, the MTV uh, Top 100 videos from 1988, you can see that change. Like on the one half, that Top 100 is full of uh, like George Michael, Michael Jackson, uh, Whitney Houston, pop music like that. Yeah. Then there was a lot of Aerosmith and Def Leppard in there, which is already going into that area of rock, but being a bit more uh, radio friendly. The biggest new were they name unit shifters as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were <laughs> definitely. Um, but the biggest new name on the scene in 1988 uh, was Guns N' Roses, and I think that that says a lot about the the sort of rock environment that Nirvana burst into a year later. So you actually want me to play some Guns N' Roses now? Yeah. <laughs> Not ending with a Nirvana song <laughs> is, is, is problematic enough, but ending with Guns N' Roses is pure blasphemy. It's, it's definitely blasphemy, but I think that it's good to do so because we'll get back to Guns N' Roses later on, I yes, think. Yes, we will. <laughs> I have some plans. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, especially for you. Thank you. <laughs> just to okay. give some perspective yeah so so that was happening like in the in the, in the mainstream uh and, yeah. and what was happening in in seattle and uh surroundings that was in an underground scene yeah and now becoming more to the mainstream yeah, yeah. well for nirvana um the love bus single was their first step into the to that scene, I yep. think, to become a, a, a serious band. Yep. And also, it, it meant a lot to Kurt personally yep. that he finally had a physical copy of his music that was actually been, been put out <laughs> and recorded properly. Uh, he gave everybody from his family a single for Christmas Aww. as a present. <laughs> so sweet. Yeah. And of course, later he would, you know, say that it was just uh, too pop and it wasn't produced right and it didn't yep. sound right. and wanted things to be different yeah but at that moment he was really really excited um, about it so okay we have played some Guns N' Roses music but then let's give the final word to uh, yeah, Mr. Kurt Cobain shall we okay so here's a clip from an interview um, in which he talks about um, the moment that the single was uh, was released and um, uh, he requested it on the radio uh, when he was driving in his car and then he had to uh, pull over because <laughs> he was losing the signal. Aww. So he really wanted to hear uh, his own song on the radio uh, and he did. Uh, here's Kurt uh, talking about that. What was that like hearing that song come from the radio? It was amazing. I never thought that I'd ever get to that point. You know, I just thought I would be in a band and maybe make a demo, but for them to play it on the radio was just too much to ask for at that time. Great. It was just like instant success and fame beyond my wildest dreams, more than I ever wanted. But I mean, on that level, I once I got a taste of it, I really thought it was cool, and I thought I would definitely like to hear my future recordings on, on the radio and be able to 
pay my rent with this with this band. It would be really great. You know, we were totally poor, making thirty dollars a day at a show. You know, but God, we're seeing the United States for the first time. Yeah, he, he would get some other uh, opportunities later on to hear his own songs on the radio, yeah. as we all know. Yeah, okay, so um, I think that's it uh, for, for this time. Yep. Uh, the first single got released. Yeah, like I said, uh, the next two episodes of the podcast are going to be uh, dedicated uh, to uh, the Bleach album. Yeah. We're going to discuss it, um, also listen to uh, the songs uh, as they are on the album, but also to some demo versions, live versions, live versions and, yeah. and, and, and stuff like that. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to dive um, into Bleach. Definitely. Um, so I want to thank you for uh, joining me on the podcast and, again. And uh, I want to thank you for playing uh, Guns N' Roses. <laughs> yeah, I want to apologize to all our listeners for playing Guns N' Roses. <laughs> uh, and I also want to thank uh, Joop Hullegi for uh, playing our theme uh, music. You can uh, check out his uh, channel uh, Nirvana Piano or Piano Nirvana. I always forget yeah, which it is. Sorry. But if you Google uh, those two words, you'll, you'll find his channel on uh, YouTube or SoundCloud. He's playing uh, Nirvana covers on piano. It sounds really, really awesome. If you want to join our conversation about Nirvana, you can uh, find us on Facebook. Just search for Nirvana Podcast and you'll find us. Or you can send an email to uh, our very strange email address, which is uh, surewoodpodcast at gmail.com. So surewoodpodcast at gmail.com if you want to reach out to us. Uh, For now, thank you for listening. Until next time.